Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 4.10, Internal Divisions. During 1766, the American colonists spent much of their time looking back on what they had just gone through. On the one hand, they had just won a key victory against the British. However, many people recognized that the Declaratory Act had made their victory more of a temporary respite, rather than something that would lead to long-lasting change. Indeed, the colonies are going to see in 1767 that the British still very much intended to do what they could to tax them. Now, we are moving quickly towards the Townsend Acts. However, before we get there, I do have a few other topics that I want to touch on. If we accept that 1765 and the Stamp Act was an inflection point for the American colonists, a point where their path was permanently altered, I think it is important to go look at other issues going on at the same time. Well, the Stamp Act was the giant in the room during 1765 and 66. Throughout the colonies, there were other signs of growing resentment and concerns taking place. Well, different groups had different concerns and different fights with each other. All of this is going to help explain the mindset of the American colonist as we march ever closer towards shots being fired at Lexington and Concord. During our last episode, we had discussed the position of the colonists as it related to John Locke and some of his theories. Recall that the argument being put forward is that a free people have natural rights specifically in this case, the right to property. The thing that differentiates a slave from a free person is that a free person must consent to giving up their rights, whereas a slave has no right to consent. In that way, the colonists were arguing that the Stamp Act had made them into slaves. Now, the fact was not lost on anybody that as the colonists were arguing about their rights and about being turned into slaves, they were busy actively enslaving people. This language made people uncomfortable, as it created a potentially dangerous situation for the colonists, especially in the South. The population of slaves in the colonies had exploded in the last few decades. In South Carolina, for instance, in the 20 years between 1740 and 1760, the slave population had doubled from 30,000 to nearly 60,000. Virginia had gone from 60,000 slaves to 140,000 in the same time period. This meant that the South Carolina slave population now made up 60% of that colony's total population. In Virginia, over 40% of the colony's population was now being held in bondage. The influx of new slaves really begins following the end of the French and Indian War. A significant cause of concern came from the fact that a good number of the militia of the southern colonies during that period after the French and Indian War and 1765 were stuck out on the frontiers preparing for a potential Indian invasion. Recall that Pontiac's Rebellion is dragging on through this time, not to mention that everybody still had the Cherokee Rebellion on their mind. With a reduced number of militia, however, it meant that during a period where there was a massive amount of importation of slaves going on, the colony was especially exposed because of the lack of militia that remained nearby. 
for those living in a place like South Carolina, where the slave population was significantly higher than the free population. All this talk about rights and the colonists being slaves presented a very concerning problem. The last thing those colonists wanted was for their actual slaves to catch wind of the debates and get any ideas. For many colonists in the South, there was a considerable fear that the Indians and enslaved men and women might make for natural allies. Clearly, both camps shared a common enemy, and in a colonial system that was always functioning with a high amount of paranoia over the risk of a slave uprising, the risk was enough to make people sweat. Such cooperation between the enslaved and the Indians was not something completely foreign either. Following the end of the French and Indian War, slaves throughout the Detroit region grew, and the status of many became murky. First, you had to deal with the French slaves that were either going to be sold to the British, or were originally captured by the French and Indian forces, and therefore were to be returned outright. Second, as the British expanded westward to begin to get control over the region around Detroit, they brought slaves along with them to help with the heavy lifting. During Pontiac's rebellion, the native forces realized the importance of slaves to the British, and they made for popular targets. Often, rather than killing them outright, they would instead capture the enslaved and use them in much the same way that the British had. There are, however, examples during the same period of slaves escaping and finding themselves as free men, closely tied to the Indian settlements. For the white colonists, this brings with it a very real risk. Other than the economic threat that goes along with losing their slaves, it also meant an intelligence boon for the Indians. Slaves know the land. They know how to strike at the colonists and how to make it hurt. Either way, in the 1760s, much of the colonial leadership worried about African slaves teaming up with hostile Indians in what would have been a catastrophe. While the alliance never panned out, it made a lot of southern colonists sleep with one eye open. To be certain, the enslaved population absolutely picked up on the open discussion of liberty versus slavery. According to Henry Lawrence of South Carolina, somebody who we are going to spend significant amounts of time with moving forward, he had overheard slaves yelling out, Liberty. This came at the exact same moment as a major slave escape, further increasing tensions in the colony. The combination of slaves crying out their own declarations of liberty with large-scale escapes pushed the assembly to suspend the importation of all slaves into South Carolina for a period of three years, beginning in 1766. Realistically, though, there was not the opportunity in 1766 for any kind of a meaningful slave uprising. Despite the rapid influx of new slaves, the spread-out plantation system continued to stymie any opportunity for mass-scale organization. Well, the South was dealing with issues of growing slavery. Elsewhere in the colonies, there was the first real movement towards ending the practice entirely. In Massachusetts, there was a movement in the general direction of abolition. For years, more radical fringes of society had supported abolition. However, with the political realignment and the emergence of those same radical groups into the mainstream political fray as a result of the Stamp Act, abolition suddenly found itself gaining more traction than it ever had before. 
James Otis Jr., for example, had become a very big proponent of ending slavery. Perhaps no place more than Boston had dealt with the discussion over liberty versus slavery in regards to the Stamp Act. As a whole, Bostonians had long been on edge of being made into slaves by arbitrary power. They all knew about Edmund Andros in the Dominion, and nobody had any wish nor intention of ever heading back in that direction. By 1766, the movement was quickly coalescing, and beginning from that point, you do have a real push to end slavery in the colony. Now, to be sure, this is not going to be some overnight development. Indeed, when first presented in 1766, the outcome was a five-year ban from bringing the bill back up. Five years later, when it was passed, Thomas Hutchinson vetoed it. As slavery in Boston was urban in nature, it meant that the now open discussions about the practice were things being overheard by the slaves themselves. Throughout the next decade, these ideas would spread throughout the New England slave population. It is likewise worth considering that such opposition to slavery was not isolated only to the northern colonies. There were people in the South as well who were openly discussing the apparent contradictions between the calls for liberty associated with the Stamp Act protests and the holding of literal slaves. Much as in the North, news of these debates did reach the slave population, often through the oral sharing of information. The repeal of the Stamp Act was a momentary victory for some in the colonies. However, recall that it was not the only act that had been thoroughly annoying the colonists. Speaking long after the events of the moment in 1818, John Adams wrote to a friend that molasses was an essential ingredient in American independence. For John Adams, he is clearly discussing the still very much hated American Duties Act. Likewise, tensions would remain high along the frontier, where colonists continued to bristle along the proclamation line of 1763. It has been a minute since we last discussed the proclamation line of 1763. So as a quick review, this was the line that was put into place by the king in 1763 in response to Pontiac's rebellion. The line restricted British settlement to the west in order to cut down on Indian hostility. The act was, in practice, the same thing that was agreed to during the Eastern Conference. However, George III very much intended that his proclamation be obeyed. The problem that sprung up is that the Ohio country, which was on the wrong side of the proclamation line, was rife with speculation by the colonists. Furthermore, there was a notable reduction in the available land. This came predictably as the population had soared in the years following Queen Anne's War. As the population grew, subsequent generations were forced to divide their land into even smaller parcels in order to provide an inheritance for their children. This would, in turn, lead to smaller and smaller individual holdings. Smaller plots of land limited the ability of the colonists to properly tend their fields, which led to soil depletion. Enforcement of the proclamation line further hemmed in those colonists and cut down on the abundant land that they so desperately needed. For the colonists living along the frontiers, their anger became pointed towards the colonial officials, not back in Great Britain, 
but rather those who made their homes in the colonies. To those on the frontiers, it was those working in the courts and controlling land policies who drew the ire of the aggrieved farmers. Among the groups causing the biggest problems was that group of speculators. As speculation on land grew, it would often collide with the natural expansion of those farms. In North Carolina, those on the frontier were angry over the obvious bias of urban interests. Most of the biggest land speculators lived closer to the East Coast, in a more populated urban environment. Colonial officials, lawyers and sheriffs alike, favored the speculators over the smaller frontier farmers. The man who would come to lead the frontier farmers in North Carolina was named Herman Husband. Husband had relocated to the frontier in the 1750s in search of cheap land. He had hoped that the area would become a home for smaller landowners working on smaller farms, rather than the more massive plantations that had become so dominant throughout the South. Despite his own considerable holdings, Husband did not envision these large, slave-ridden plantations developing in the area. Husband was opposed to the practice of slavery, and was growing increasingly concerned at the number of slaves being imported out to the frontiers. Now, it is not as though Husband is an early abolitionist, but rather he wanted to see currently landless whites have some way to compete with the larger plantations. The importation of slaves to the frontiers benefited the large landowners, who had the capital necessary to purchase large numbers of slaves. He worried that the importation of more slaves to the frontiers would quickly overwhelm the smaller planters, and the big plantation owners would gobble up all of the affordable land. Husband was also angry over the requirement that he was forced to give to the state-sponsored Anglican Church. Himself a Presbyterian, he had little interest in spending his hard-earned money to support an Anglican church which he despised. For those on the frontiers, you had numerous religions represented, including Baptists, Quakers, and Presbyterians. None of these groups were eager to support an Anglican church which they all despised. The problem was when husband and his fellow farmers on the frontier refused to pay their taxes the colonial leadership swept in and confiscated their land. For the North Carolina authorities, this was a much bigger problem than they had initially realized. For many, they had been moved by the Great Awakening and felt that it was their duty to stand up in the face of what they perceived as being a corrupt system. There was no want of participants either. The large Quaker population meant that men and women alike participated and indeed, they would lead the movement along the frontier. Well, there had been a good deal of resistance and grumbling for years, in 1767, the issue was finally shoved to the front of everybody's mind. That year, North Carolina Governor William Tyron decided that the time was right to build himself a new house. The new governor's mansion was going to cost a staggering 15,000 pounds. This was to be paid with a flat poll tax that would stick everybody, from the largest plantation owner to the smallest farmer, paying an equal share. The colonists were fed up by this point, 
and quickly formed up to let everybody know just how they felt. The first order of business was reclaiming their property that had been seized by the government to settle their debts. This went over about as well as you probably would imagine. It forced Governor Tyron to call out the militia to help get a handle on things. Tyron, however, was not very happy when the majority of the militia called out to get a handle on things, decided not to show up. Those who did decide to report took the leader, husband, into custody. However, don't worry too much about Herman Husband, because shortly thereafter, a mob of 700 frontier farmers marched armed to the jail and suggested to his jailers that they go ahead and release him. The sight of 700 armed and angry farmers was more than enough to convince the guards that this was probably a good idea, and just like that, Husband was a free man. For years following, there was a back-and-forth bickering between the governor and the frontier farmers, now called the Regulators, after an English term for citizens fighting against government corruption and injustice. More than once, the governor would call out the militia to get control over the situation. Tyron would have been plenty happy to see all of these regulators hang, but the reality was there were too many of them to easily quash the movement. Ultimately, the fight with the regulators would momentarily be mollified when Tyron agreed to at least listen to their grievances. The regulators in North Carolina represent one of the larger uprisings that occurred in the colonies during this era. However, North Carolina was not the only colony to see rising discontent along the frontiers. New York had similar flare-ups of tension along their frontiers as well. In that colony, you had a few men who owned absolutely giant estates. Estates that were so large that they operated in something resembling a feudal system. Small farmers would rent portions of these giant estates and pay rents to their larger landowners. The problem for all these small tenant farmers is that the men who owned the estates tended to also be the most powerful men in the colonial administration. For example, up until 1750, one of the manors had been owned by Adolf Philipsi. This is the same Adolf Philipsi who we last saw hearing cases on the 1741 New York slave conspiracy. To say the least, these families were at the absolute height of power in New York. With these giant estate owners having complete control over both the assembly and the courts, there were very limited options for the aggrieved colonists who wanted to make their voices heard. Unsurprisingly, these estate owners were not exactly interested in hearing complaints about their own corruption. In 1766, when a group of colonists were looking at eviction, they were spurred on by the still ongoing resistance to the Stamp Act in their own resistance back towards colonial officials. This group of tenant farmers was led in their resistance by William Pendergrast. Pendergrast, much like husband in North Carolina, led evicted farmers back into their confiscated lands and had them reclaim control. Colonial officials, shocked over this display, issued arrest warrants. However, that did little more than enrage even more colonists and drew them into the resistance. By 1766, 
Pendergrast had several hundred followers at his disposal and was actively trying to recruit those who had led the Stamp Act protests to join his cause. Unfortunately for Pendergrast, this would fizzle out on him. Just days before he would give a rousing speech to get these groups to join his cause, news came down that the Stamp Act had been repealed. The men that he had been trying to recruit had just won their fight, and now suddenly had very little energy left to devote to some angry tenants. Furthermore, amongst the New York Sons of Liberty were John Van Cortland and Peter Livingston, both of whom were primary targets of these same tenants. The New York Sons of Liberty were not going to suddenly turn on two of their most prominent leaders. With the wind taken from their sails, Pendergrast was arrested and sentenced to death by being drawn and quartered. However, as a clear sign of the popularity and sympathy for men like Pendergrast, when the sheriff requested assistance with the execution, all he got was crickets in return. Nobody was willing to come help with the killing of a man who had become a frontier symbol of resistance. Understanding the now considerable risk of actually executing Pendergrast and incurring the wrath of angry frontier farmers, New York Governor Henry Moore gave Pendergrass a stay of execution, which, in time, would become a royal pardon. Although Pendergrast would not meet a grisly demise for his acts, his actions would not remain an isolated incident. All throughout the Upper Hudson Valley, riots would break out against those same large estate holders. The large landlords would recruit and hire security forces to repel the mobs of tenant farmers who were eager to burn houses and, more than likely, kill the occupants within. Finally, the situation became so dire that Thomas Gage had to send British troops in to restore the peace and put down the riotous mobs. None of this was unique, of course. Tension had been building along the frontier for years. Those living in these areas often felt completely misunderstood, if not outright ignored, by the colonial leadership living in the relative safety of the more urban environments. Recall the Paxton Boys uprising that we had talked about back in episode 4.3. Though they had their own reasons to be angry, that incident ties directly into what we saw this week in North Carolina and now New York. There was a simmering anger that was lying right at the surface in the 1760s. The anger along the frontiers is different from what we saw filter through the colonies in response to the Stamp Act. However, it was an anger that was reinforced by the protests in response to the Stamp Act. From North Carolina to Pennsylvania and New York, there was an anger towards colonial administrations and their often myopic and corrupt policies. These grievances are going to help explain the mind frame of the frontier colonists as the imperial crisis deepens. Of course, none of these protests and uprisings along the frontier are happening in a vacuum. Much of the uprisings in New York, for instance, is going on at the same time as the fight over the Stamp Act. The regulators in North Carolina were raising their complaints during the colonial response to the Townsend Acts. In this way, the growing radicalism towards British imperial policy would embolden people along the frontiers to seek redress of their grievances from the colonial leadership, 
including many of the same people who were actively fighting against British policy. As we move towards the end of today, I want to switch gears just a bit and turn towards two final acts, specifically the American Duties Act and the Quartering Act, and see just what their fate would be. There is no question that the tax on sugar was a hated thing in the colonies. Sure, it had not led to the mob action in the streets like the Stamp Act, but that is certainly not to say that the colonists liked the American Duties Act. As it turns out, the American Duties Act would not die some dramatic death as did the Stamp Act. Rather, the act would be quietly repealed and replaced. The main change is that they dropped the tax to just a single penny per gallon, down from three pence per gallon under the American Duties Act. The American Duties Act had quietly hurt the economy since its passage, and would be phased out at approximately the same time as the Stamp Act. The decision to reduce the tax on sugar was, again, more of a pragmatic response than anything else. Merchants, in particular those in New York, had gone out of their way to avoid purchasing sugar at the inflated prices. Sometimes this meant smuggling, and other times it meant just keeping imports to a minimum. Either way, the British were cognizant of the fact that the tax was hampering colonial trade enough that fighting over a three-pence tax was doing far more harm than it was good. Whereas the American Duties Act had died as quiet of a death as the British could allow, soon the crisis would grow deeper. The problem this time was not revenue, but rather was the question over the quartering of troops. Unlike the widespread response to the Stamp Act, the response to the Quartering Act tended to be limited in scope, though critically not ferocity, to the New York colony. This is not the first time, of course, that we have seen everybody get fired up over the question of quartering. We had discussed quartering back in episode 3.31 last season, as it related to the French and Indian War. It came up again this season in episode 4.6. Without rehashing the entire thing, if you recall, Parliament had passed a bunch of new regulations relating to how the army needed to be cared for by the colonists. While the act was asking nothing more than what would have been expected at home, the colonists were not fans. Ironically, most of the British leadership on the ground, men like Thomas Gage, also hated the act because it did not go far enough, as it did not allow for the quartering of troops in private homes. Remember as well that with a British army permanently stationed in North America now, this was going to be of more pressing concern than it ever had been before. Internal outrage regarding the Quartering Act had thus far been met with little more than some annoyed fist-shaking. Now, this is not because the colonists were in any agreement with the Quartering Act. They hated it, and they absolutely objected to it. However, remember that the act had passed roughly at the same time as the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act, as we have clearly seen, was such a giant issue on its own that it essentially blocked out several other complaints being held by the colonists. People who were screaming about the Quartering Act were drowned out in the clamor over the Stamp Act. This, however, is all about to change. New York in 1765 was the home base for the British military efforts in North America. It was where General Thomas Gage made his headquarters. 
Problems arose when Gage began requesting provisions in December of 1765. He grew annoyed when the New York Assembly drugged their feet, mostly because they were busy being angry about the Stamp Act. It was not until July 1766 that the Assembly finally gave way and made the necessary provisions. This acquiescence came with a price, however. The Assembly had decided that they were the ones who should determine the details of how to make the provisions available. To this, the British scoffed at what was a colonial assembly, usurping power for themselves, that the British felt belonged in their own hands. This move got the New York government a reminder that their job is to follow the laws of Great Britain and do what they were told. Unsurprisingly, given everything that we have seen in the last five episodes, the assembly was not feeling any real necessity to back down from their position right now. The colonists complained that they were carrying an unequal burden from the act and made it clear that, while compliance was a nice suggestion, it was something that they were not going to be doing. The assembly argued that compliance with the quartering acts was not in the best interest of those that they were representing. As such, the assembly could not agree to it. Meanwhile, now Major League rabble rouser Samuel Adams decided to chime in and point out to everybody that the Quartering Act is a tax, and we know just what a thorn the tax question had become. This was all enough to really freak out Gage, who wrote back to London warning that the colonists were now moving decidedly in the direction of independence. Part of the reason why New York had become such a hotbed for fighting back against the Quartering Act is because the colony had more troops than anywhere else. The British now garrisoned an army permanently in North America, and had for a few years. However, generally it wasn't really a problem as that army was kept out in the West, protecting the frontiers and making sure that the French did not get any designs on recapturing Canada. The Stamp Act riots had changed the equation. Troops were now being pulled off the frontiers and being brought back towards the main colonies, where they were preparing to potentially restore the peace and put down the growing insurrection. A large number of these troops ended up in New York. Recall from earlier today that in 1766, those same troops who had been moved to New York during the Stamp Act did in fact jump in and put down the tenants during their uprising. What emerged during 1766, therefore, was a standoff between Gage and the New York Assembly. On one side, Thomas Gage shouted loudly at the colonists, demanding that they provide the necessities to the troops as detailed in the Quartering Act. On the other side, you had the legislature sticking their fingers in their ears, pretending not to notice Gage's angry cries. Interestingly, and showing how all these lines intersect, Thomas Gage was genuinely surprised that he had a problem at all. After all, his troops had at the request of the large landholders, come to the rescue. They had restored order and put down those pesky tenants. It was those same large landholders who were now often the same people making up the colonial assembly, which was balking at obeying the Quartering Act. Back in London, to say that the government was upset about this would be an understatement. 
we are going to talk more next time about the changes that had taken place. However, for now, just know that over the summer of 1766, the Rockingham Ministry had collapsed. Replacing Rockingham was none other than our old friend William Pitt, who was back to lead a new government. Everybody, including William Pitt, who had been a friend to the colonies, realized the dangerous potential of what was happening. It fell to Benjamin Franklin, who was still in London, to try to get everybody to take a deep breath and step back from the precipice. Franklin assured Parliament that everything in America was fine, and really, everybody was just getting worked up over nothing. Franklin pointed out that molehills are often magnified to mountains. Despite his reassurances that the British were dealing with a mere molehill, Parliament was now preparing to take dramatic action against New York. By the summer of 1767, the New York legislature finally decided that things had gone far enough and agreed to provide some £3,000 to cover the costs of the troops. In London, Parliament was not joking when they prepared for more dramatic action and actually issued a decree nullifying all the laws passed by the New York Assembly. Though, upon learning that the colonists had backed down prior to their own proclamation, London would also back down from this position. New York Lieutenant Governor Cadwallader Colden pointed out in a letter that despite the New York Assembly making the payment, it should be noted that they had been very careful in doing so, not to acknowledge parliamentary supremacy. While the Stamp Act was the elephant in the room during 1765 and 66, it was hardly the only source of anger and tension in the colonies during that time. Along the frontiers, colonists were growing increasingly frustrated by what they saw as arbitrary and corrupt actions by the colonial elites. Likewise, everybody was quickly realizing that the repeal of the Stamp Act solved nothing and failed to provide adequate answers to the growing imperial crisis. Parliament had grown even more frustrated over the behavior of their colonies, and they were very eager to remind those wayward colonists exactly who was in charge. Next time, we are going to meet Charles Townsend, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer. Townsend is going to propose a set of acts that is going to ensure that the crisis in the colonies continues to grow and expand. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you all back here next time as we introduce the Townsend Axe.